Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So, um, sorry I wasn't here last week, but uh, real life intruded. Um, My work has just been slamming me and uh, I've been working into the wee hours of the night some nights. Uh, So, tonight... Um, I wanted to also say that if you have any questions or suggestions for topics, you can always comment on the website or you can email me directly at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. So for instance, if you're tired of hearing about COVID, I'd love some feedback. Uh, But for tonight... I unfortunately am spending a large portion of uh, the show talking about COVID. So if you uh, don't love that, um, I apologize. And uh, I promise that I'm hoping, as all of us are, that we can stop talking about this. But a lot is happening right now. And so I feel remiss not talking about it. And so let's talk about how researchers are getting closer to determining why the Delta variant is so much more infectious. We've talked about some of this before, but here are some new things that have been coming up. And so all of this is really new research. So some of it, uh, a lot of this research hasn't gone through the whole peer-reviewed process. So I just always, I'm going to remind you of that a couple more times, just so that we're clear that this is kind of breaking news uh, science, which much like breaking news is always subject to amendment later on as more facts come in. Okay. But Let's, let's go through some of it. And so a few particular mutations on the spike protein seem to be a good candidate for the culprit. And of course, it could be many things, but these are some pretty big changes. And so they actually make the virus able to invade cells more quickly than previous variants. And so the first suspect is a mutation called P681R that helps the virus more quickly perform a crucial step in evading the cell. Now we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Another is called D950N that researchers believe may change the structure of the spike protein in order to make it easier for the virus to morph and fuse with a human's cells. Now, it's important to remember uh, that this has only been around since December of last year, and so we are just still in the early stages of understanding this. Many researchers are currently honing in on what is called the furin cleavage site, and so mutations in the Delta variant have improved the function of this important part of the spike protein. The furin cleavage site is the first part of a two-part step in which the virus manages to fuse with the cell's membrane in order for the virus to inject its genetic material into the cell. So basically, the virus has to latch onto the cell, and then it has to find a way to 
present the right kind of proteins to the cell in order for the cell's wall to merge with it. And then it's able to actually inject uh, its genetic material into the cell once it's part of the cell membrane. So basically it kind of becomes part of the wall of the cell and then it's able to um, breach the cell. And so in order to do this, the spike protein must change shape. And it does this with two chemical cuts that expose different molecules to the cell's membrane. The first of these cuts is caused by the enzyme furin at the, well, furin cleavage site. <laughs> uh, sometimes not having uh, imaginative names is best. And so COVID-19 in all of its variants is especially problematic because this cleavage site is called, is what is called polybasic. And so the original SARS virus, not any of the COVID ones, um, but the SARS virus original. So this is the SARS uh, virus 2 um, because it's a coronavirus related to the one that caused uh, that caused the original SARS outbreak. But that one, again, was monobasic and thus less easily spread. So um, another polybasic virus. Uh, virus is the bird flu, which of course was much more uh, infectious than SARS. And so monobasics lack an extra, extra amino acid sequence, which allows for the use of furin. And furin is important because it's found in many types of tissues. Proteases that target monobasic cleavage sites are more limited and may only be found in a subset of tissues and locations in the body. So basically, furin is found in the lungs, in the digestive tract, in, um, I also think the esophagus, like it's found in a lot of places where infection is really easy to take off. Whereas if you don't have access to furin, you're more, the, the virus is more limited in, uh, the kinds of cells it can infect. So in COVID-19, the furin triggers a first cut at a point between the two subunits of the spike protein. The second cut occurs within the second subunit and is triggered by an enzyme called TMPRSS2. Um, and just to be clear, that uh, when we're talking about the furin and uh, cleavage site that has to do with that first mutation. And so it's actually easier uh, and more efficient in the Delta variant. And so the second trigger exposes a second set of amino acids. And these proteins basically mold the two membranes together. Once inside, the virus hijacks the cell into replicating more versions of the virus that can in turn infect more cells. And that's how you get an infection. Um, and so viruses actually can still sneak into cells without this process. They can hijack an organelle called an endosome, which is basically an envelope, a chemical envelope that cells use to move molecules around. But that root is smaller and it's actually kind of fraught <laughs> because endosomes actually have some mechanism for identifying and digesting viruses. So a lot harder to do that mechanism. 
The bottom line is that Delta virus is more efficient, says Gary Whitaker, a professor of virology at Cornell University who specializes in coronaviruses. It fuses faster and enters cells faster, and presumably that translates to more to generally more efficient transmission overall in the population. And so in June, researchers reported on the BioRx4 preprint server, and that's, again, uh, preprint means these are papers that are being put out for people to look at, but that have not yet been officially peer-reviewed. And so it allows sort of people to get their ideas out there before they are formally published. And so they reported that the P681R mutation made furin cleavage more efficient. And so um, one thing to note, though, is that this was found in vitro. Virus particles with this mutation are more infectious to cells in petri dishes with a fake viral shell studded with P681R spike proteins being five to six times more likely to infect cells than a control group without the mutation. And so there's always a um, caution about the idea of in vitro versus in vivo. Um, So basically in a Petri dish versus in a mouse model or in a human uh, model but it's still a worrying marker of Delta's increased infectiousness. And in fact, another study pitted alpha and Delta variant viruses against each other in vitro and found that alpha was actually better at binding to ACE2 receptors, but that Delta's supercharged furin cleavage still gave it an advantage. P681R is altering the activation properties of the spike. There's no doubt in my mind, said Whitaker, who was not involved in that particular research. Now, we have to talk about uh, that a little bit more, because interestingly, a Ugandan variant had this same mutation, but has not managed to jump to the wider population. And it was also found in the Kappa variant, which has basically been completely taken over by Delta. And so a third preprint actually found that P681R wasn't a factor in their study, but rather a mutation called D950N, which sits in a region of the spike protein that needs to change shape significantly in order to fuse with the cell. Now, this is actually a quite subtle change, which shows just how easily uh, mutations can help a uh, virus. And of course, a mutation can always be detrimental as well, but viruses are really good at uh, gathering mutations. And so uh, they're really good at, um, they tend to mutate pretty fast, coronaviruses. Uh, Some viruses are more... um, able to have mutations rapidly and some have less rapid mutations. Uh, Unfortunately, coronavirus tends to be one that's uh, in the middle. It's not so fast, but it's fast enough that it's already had chances to mutate in ways that are making it better at uh, 
infecting us and making us sick. And so what they found was that it this mutation does nothing more than slightly shift the electrostatic potential at the spike protein surface. But this might be just enough to make the spike protein better at snapping into its new shape and binding with the cell. Outside researchers looking at the paper wonder, though, if the types of cells they used might have skewed the results, or their use of viral shells or shells covered in viral proteins rather than the actual viruses might have made a difference. The authors, however, point to Kappa and the Ugandan strain that had that P681R mutation but did not have the staying powder of Delta. Other researchers did notice, however, that in their trials, Delta was better at entering cells with low levels of ACE2 receptors. And so basically the ACE2 receptor is the way that the virus actually latches onto a cell before it takes the, uh, before it starts to cut its spike protein and actually meld into the cell. That's how it first is able to um, latch onto the cell. So uh, if you remember biology textbooks of uh, amino acid uh, sort of locks and keys um, in on the cell membranes, it's the the ACE2 receptor it has that is a lock and the uh, the coronavirus has a shape that fits into it just like the actual key that should go in there does. Um, and so that's how it's able to attach to cells. And so if it's true that they're better at doing this, that could be another big factor. Whitaker explains that if a virus can bind tight to a receptor, it can take its time to fuse to the cell. Alternatively, if it's good at fusion, binding is less important. Delta seems to be very efficient at fusion, thus the ability to enter cells even with smaller numbers of ACE2 receptors. Coronaviruses are like the most sneaky viruses there are, he said. They're very adaptable. They can find roots into cells and into people much more so than any other virus. Their spike proteins are very adaptive. It can use multiple triggers to infect and it can adjust itself very easily. And in fact, Delta has developed more mutations, including one to the N-terminal binding domain. Now, this is an area that is targeted by antibodies, which is a big worry because the more that it changes its shape, the more antibodies won't be able to re recognize it. But luckily, those antibodies are looking at other uh, domains as well. So it's not the only place that uh, our antibodies are looking at it. Um, but it could also be helping the virus to stick to cells, again, making it easier for the virus to infect them. And so I've been talking a lot about the spike protein, and you've probably largely been hearing about that in other venues as well. Uh, and there's a reason for that. So researchers absolutely know they should be studying other parts of the virus uh, because, you know, it's much like any other organism 
this one part isn't the sum total. And so there might actually be other regions of the virus that are doing something new and unique that we haven't yet figured out. But the spike protein is really the easiest place to do work. Um, and so that is the issue is that it's fairly easy and people have a lot of experience doing, uh, work with the spike proteins. And so in order to work with other parts of the virus, it generally requires working with live virus, which requires specific expertise and biosecurity measures. Um, and so this isn't as bad as some others, but, uh, you know, working with live viruses is always problematic. And, um, you know, there've been a couple of recent, uh, examples of even when people are trying to be extremely careful, even when they are following all of the, uh, security measures, sometimes people can get infected with things. And so people have died from, um, you know, breaches in, uh, the biocontainment of these kinds of serious diseases. And again, COVID-19, especially if you're vaccinated, is much less likely to kill you. But there have been some, um, some uh, other examples of this in recent memory. Um, interestingly, there is a couple of people in a French lab, I want to say, and I'm pulling this from memory, so don't take it as uh, absolute truth, but there were a couple of people at a French lab who were actually studying prion diseases and passed away from prion diseases. Um, prion diseases are one of those things that, you know, if I uh, thought about them more than I do, which is hardly ever, uh, I probably wouldn't be able to sleep at night. So we're not going to talk about that because that's just, that's a whole nother thing. Um, because prion diseases, you know, we've, we've been trying to figure them out for years and, uh, all, all, uh, signs point to them being basically unable to be, uh, thwarted. So we're going to leave that alone because COVID-19 can be thwarted. We know it can be. And so while Delta has developed a suite of new tricks, Unfortunately, COVID-19 has already developed other advantages, such as when the alpha variant mutated to help keep the spike protein in an open position, making it more readily available for binding to those human ACE2 receptors. It then developed a second mutation, N5011Y, which also helped to boost ACE2 binding. And so that's what made the alpha virus about 50% more transmissible than the original strain. But Delta has basically been able to work off of that. And so it is thought to be another 60% more transmissible than the already supercharged alpha variant. And so one of the big things is that the original virus had an R0 value of 2 to 3. So R0 is considered the reproduction value, a measure used in epidemiology to indicate the average number of people that are infected, um, that an infected person will then pass the virus on to. And so 
people with Delta virus, the Delta virus has an R naught value of five to nine, which is, you know, more potentially than, you know, it's, it's twice to three times as, uh, infectious. And Delta also has another thing that makes it tricky. So it also seems to have a longer lag between when a person becomes infectious and when they develop symptoms. According to a study of an outbreak in Guangdong, China, it turns out that uh, people just don't know they have it for a longer amount of time. It is just tough to stop, says Benjamin Cowling, an epidemiologist at the University of Hong Kong and a co-author of the study, which was posted on a preprint server uh, last week. Cowling and his team examined test data from 101 people in the area who were infected with Delta between May and June of this year, along with data from their close contacts. They found that on average, people began to show symptoms of COVID after 5.8 days after infection, but that this was a full 1.8 days after they began to test positive and thus were considered infectious. This is comparable to data from before the emergence of Delta, where averages were 6.3 days from infection and just 0.8 days before symptoms began and people would realize they were infected without regular testing. And of course, this is a big thing because few people, when we look at the pandemic globally, have access to regular testing. And so, you know, we're fortunate here to have ready access to testing. Uh, you know, you can go to UMass and get tested. Um, many places have their own testing uh, protocols. All of the colleges uh, have testing protocols. And so it's, you know, you can go to CVS and get a test. Um, but most of the world doesn't have access to ready testing. And so most people don't get tested even here until they actually feel sick though. And so the longer it takes you to feel sick that you're infectious, the longer you're going to just be walking around doing what you normally would do. And so, and of course we've noted before that the viral load tends to be higher as well. In the study, they found that 74% of infections with Delta took place before the individual was symptomatic. This high rate, quote, helps explain how this variant has been able to outpace both the wild-type virus and other variants to become the dominant strain worldwide, said Barnaby Young, an infectious disease cl clinician at the National Center for Infectious Diseases in Singapore. And so in this study, they found an r naught value of 6.4, right in that middle range uh, between 5 and 9. Uh, and so this is what we think has been fueling a terrible toll as the virus rages across, you know, much of uh, the U.S. and Europe, but also across Asia and other parts of the world. And so, uh, as we know, the Delta virus most likely originated in India. And so there's some, there's some fraught things there because reports suggest that the number of deaths from the virus are up to 10 
times the numbers officially released by the government. So the official government death toll is a mere 425,000 people, which is a lot of people, don't get me wrong. But the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. used three data sources and estimated a mortality rate of up to 4.9 million people, or a mortality, not rate. And so there were approximately 3.4 million excess, excess deaths reported by state death registries. An extrapolation from estimated infections based on antibody surveys pegged the number at around 4 million. And finally, excess deaths based on a nationwide household survey suggested that up to 4.9 million people have lost their lives. And so um, India has a lot going on, um, and I'm not surprised that the... Um, the government would want to downplay the amount of deaths, much like they did in America. Uh, and so in America, we probably have a lot more deaths than uh, we were reporting uh, before. It might be better now, but who's to say? Um, and so for political reasons, of course, governments don't want to admit that they have millions of people dying under their watch. And so, yeah. Now, another big thing about Delta was that many of these deaths were in rural areas, which was unique because earlier strains, they were less infectious. And so they mostly spread and flared in urban centers and didn't actually manage to creep out into the countryside. The variant is so much more transmissible that health systems get overwhelmed with no time to prepare, says Ramanana Laxminiarana. I'm so sorry for butchering these names. Uh, there'll be several of them. Um, and so they're an epidemiologist at Princeton University in New Jersey, who is actually based in New Delhi. The second wave has been absolutely devastating in rural India. And in Southeast Asia, the variant is just ramping up in areas with extremely low vaccination rates. In Indonesia, daily deaths now surpass 1,700. Public health officials worry that children will be particularly hard hit because a study from last year found that about 10% of children hospitalized in Jakarta actually died from COVID-19. And, you know, we have a relatively healthy and well-vaccinated and generally, um, you know, uh, healthy population of children in this country, though, you know, that is not a blanket statement. But in Southeast Asia, a lot of children are weakened already due to malnutrition and other diseases such as malaria and tuberculosis. And so they're already fighting for their lives in some respects before they even get COVID-19. And as we know, having underlying issues makes it much more deadly. In Bangladesh, cases have hit an average of 14,000 with daily deaths at more than 230. And again, it's hitting rural areas. This totally new population is getting affected, who have been protected for whatever reason all this time, Sanjudi Saha, a molecular geneticist at the Child Health Research Foundation in Dhaka, says. 
Another factor is that despite the pandemic still being very much a part of everyday life, travel for this year's Ide Festival in July was much less strict than in 2020, which again, I totally get because people want to be able to celebrate their holidays. They want to be able to feel like things are normal. Um, you know, part of this happened in China with the, with the, uh, Chinese New Year travel. And of course, China is much better at being extremely, um, draconian in keeping people in place, but still thousands of people still traveled. Um, and so, you know, this is both the, uh, gift and curse of modernity is that people are able to move around much more easily. And so great for being able to keep people connected. Also great for spreading global pandemics, unfortunately. Um, and so, as I said, a lot of these countries have very low vaccination rates. Bangladesh has a vaccination rate of around 6%, where with the Philippines at 11% and Indonesia at 17%. But most of those are concentrated on the islands of Java and Bali. But Indonesia has thousands of smaller islands posing a logistical nightmare for getting people vaccinated. Malaysia, on the other hand, which I think is a very uh, good idea, is just they're just aggressively vaccinating, according to Yok Fun Chan, um, a virologist at the University of Malaya in Kuala Lumpur. And so they've actually reached a 45% vaccination rate. Rather than looking for the virus, now we are looking for solutions to stop the virus, she says. And while rural areas are a new concern, cities remain a concern as well. In Thailand, previous variants had not pierced into Bangkok, but the Delta variant has arrived and is now spreading to other cities. In America, which currently has a fully, vaccin va has a fully vaccinated rate of 52.3, uh, with mass as of yesterday hovering around 65.6, uh, you know, we are doing substantially better than them, but still not nearly enough. Uh, both numbers are better than in the developing world, but they are still far lower than they should be and are creeping up at a snail's pace. Um, by the way, as of yesterday, if you are in uh, Hampshire County, we are listed as having a substantial risk of community transmission, which seems to me like it should be the top one. But for some reason, and, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not the communications person for the CDC, clearly. Uh, so high is actually higher than substantial. Um, I just, I don't agree. But anyways, that's how it is. Um, so right now, uh, Worcester County, um, Berkshire County, and I also believe Hamden, but I don't remember, are all at high. Um, so we're a little bit further down the, the rung, but only by a little. And so they are absolutely suggesting that everyone wear masks. Um, and so definitely indoors, wherever you are, that's not, you know, your own home or a private office. Um, and, you know, if you can't social distance outside, if you're having a very, you know, if you're squished in with a bunch of people outside, if you can wear a mask, definitely better to do it. Um, you know, it's just, 
we we really want to make sure that we are not being a part of spreading this further and allowing it to get to more unvaccinated people where it can then uh, begin to try and uh, develop more mutations that might make it even more infectious or more deadly or anything. Um, and so, for instance, in Florida, despite the governor trying desperately to score political points with the right by opposing COVID-19 measures pretty much as much as he possibly can without looking like a total ghoul, uh, I'm actually surprised that Florida has managed to get up to a just under 52% of the population being fully vaccinated. So that's about the national average. So, um, so definitely give props to a lot of people in Florida. Not everyone is like DeSantis. Um, not everyone is a 18 year old who thinks they're invincible, though there are a lot of those in Florida and in all of the other states as well. Uh, but despite this relatively high vaccination rate, almost one in five cases of hospitalizations from the disease are currently in Florida at around 17,000. Texas comes in next at around 13,000, but California comes in third at 9,000. So again, it's not necessarily a blue-red divide because Delta is so infectious. And so as of earlier this week, more than a quarter of these people are intensive are in intensive care and many have and will die. The, seven, the CDC's current seven-day moving average of daily new cases increased 14% this week to 133,056. Now, um, I do want to take a break for a minute. And so I bet you could also take a break from just hearing the onslaught of all of these numbers. So let's do that. And then we're going to come back. I do still have some more uh COVID-19 information that I think is important to talk about, but I feel like we're also in the home stretch. So there'll be other things, I promise. Um, so do stay tuned while we do a couple of PSAs and show promos. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking, healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. 
up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. Está oyendo a... Valley Free Radio, W-X-O-J-L-P, Northampton. Radio should be fun, so on Sundays, we get weird. Mad Hatter's Mix, Challenge Normal from 1 to 3. Connect the dots with me from Tori Amos to Weird Al to Muse, to the Proto Men to Monty Python and back to Tori Amos. Sketches, stand-up, some kickin' tunes, Mad Hatter's Mix, Sundays at 1 on 103.3 WXOJ, Valley Free Radio. Sundays from 4 to 6, please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. Hamilton was adopted from a rescue in 2008. I do not love him. Hamilton the Pug's adoption story started at a shelter. Visit theshelterpetproject.org to find a pet near you. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back and, um, like I said, I do want to talk a little bit more about what's going on with COVID. And so a worrying trend is also found in the low vaccination rates for those who are pregnant. And so the CDC reports that currently only one in four pregnant people have been vaccinated. This is despite this is despite an uptick in infections in this cohort and the CDC recommendations that all people 12 and older who don't have a specific medical reason not to should be vaccinated. Pregnant people are at increased risk for complications requiring hospitalization and death. And it's especially vexing that the lowest vaccination cohort is black women. Now, Basically, not because black women aren't doing enough, but because we continue to fail black women when it comes to, well, everything, but specifically health and maternal care. Um, by the way, shout out to the use of pregnant people uh, that the CDC is doing rather than women in their report, uh, though there were some hilarious uh, back and forths in Congress about things like that, but... I certainly appreciate that they are using pregnant people. Um, so yeah, <laughs> just an editorial aside. And so the science becomes clearer every day that vaccines are the best and easiest way to continue to combat the spread of COVID-19, with masks and social distancing helping to seal the deal. 
A new study based on surveillance data in New York suggests that the age-adjusted vaccine effectiveness against any infection has dropped from just under 92% to just under 80%, which we know from the Delta variant. But that effectiveness against hospitalization remains around the 90% mark. So that's huge. And in LA, a new study suggests that around 3% of those hospitalized were fully vaccinated. Now, I'm mildly hopeful that the FDA's approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine will help some people to either get, get the vaccine voluntarily or allow more businesses and especially school districts to require the vaccine. Um, I was actually really excited on the way over here. We heard that a uh, judge has ruled that the DeSantis, you cannot have a mask mandate in any way, shape or form, uh, edict has been struck down. I'm sure there'll be more uh, litigation over that, but it was nice to hear that at least some people are understanding that a mask mandate is not some sort of, uh, you know, fascist <laughs> government overreach, but literally simply something that is meant to help save you and your children. Um, and your grandmothers, <laughs> as people were saying very early in the uh, outbreak. And there's also hope that authorization to administer the vaccine to young children may come as early as the end of the year. And so all of this is very exciting. Um, potentially, maybe. <laughs> And uh, so also, I can't remember if I actually talked about if I knew the answer to this or not, which I don't think that I actually did. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, a couple more things. One is that even if you've been infected with COVID-19, you should still get the vaccine, especially as we now know that the Delta variant can infect even those who are fully vaccinated. If you've had exposure to COVID before, don't think you're immune to variants, said Benjamin Oliveri, a trauma surgeon who studies COVID-19 at the University of Not Nottingham in England. Have your vaccines. And so in a report in the August 6th Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, researchers found that Kentucky residents who had been who had recovered from COVID-19 infections but did not get vaccinated were around twice as likely to be reinfected as their peers who were fully vaccinated. And so right now, research suggests that a single shot might be enough, but larger studies will tell us more in the coming months. With Delta becoming the dominant strain, researchers suspect that a two-dose regimen will offer the most robust protection. In fact, researchers predict that Delta is estimated to account for 98.8% of all cases moving forward. Now, I noted above the worry for black pregnant people, but I've also previously mentioned people of color, especially non-Hispanic black people are disproportionately being affected as a whole. Hospitalization rates have increased faster and risen higher for them than for any other group, according to morbidity and mortality. Uh, and so um, if you're interested in uh, public health, um, morbidity and mortality weekly is the place to be. Um, it's 
not quite as depressing as you might think. Um, and so, yeah, I have been trying to keep up with that um, as this is going on. Now, by the way, the CDC is now stating that it might begin recommending booster shots as early as this fall. But again, I will implore you not to try to receive a third dose until the CDC approves the booster for your particular demographic. Okay, so I also hope I don't have to tell you that the anti-parasitic drug ivermectin should in no way, shape, or form be used as either a prophylactic or cure for COVID-19. Though it did lead to a wonderful use of the official FDA Twitter, where the immortal words were uh, written, these words, you are not a horse, you are not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. These have now been added to the public record, and um, you've got to find victories where you can these days, <laughs> like, you've got to find places to laugh where you can. And of course, unfortunately, it's because of something terrible. Again, people have actually been overdosing on versions of the drug meant for cows and horses. Some people have been hospitalized and it can in fact lead to death. All right. So we have been talking about the pandemic for a long time. We've got 15 minutes. Well, 12 minutes. Let's try and talk about something a little better. Um, so yeah, I'm going to skip a story about the exception of evolution. Long story short, uh, people, the, uh, U S has finally, uh, in the last couple of years reached a point where more people believe in evolution than don't, uh, which is a terrible indictment of our, uh, school systems of our, um, just of our culture, which has politicized science in such a ridiculous way that um, things that are evidently self, uh, <laughs> that are evidently true and that have mountains of evidence uh, to go along with them are not accepted by uh, large swaths of the population. But again, anyways... <laughs> So I want to talk about new research that suggests an answer to a question geologists have been wondering about for the last 150 years. The Grand Canyon hosts a spectacular vertical view of the geological history of the region going back almost 2 billion years. Except in some areas, large chunks of that story are missing. The Great Unconformity is one of the first well-documented geologic features in North America, Barra Peak, lead author of the new study and a graduate student in geological sciences at Colorado University Boulder, said. But until recently, we didn't have a lot of constraints on what or when, on when or how it occurred. Peak and her colleagues now think they might have an answer, or at least a partial answer, for where all that rock disappeared to. Published in the journal Geology, the paper suggests that a period of small yet violent faulting events may have destabilized the region during the breakup of an ancient supercontinent called Rodinia. The resulting fracture of the earth allowed rocks and sediments to wash away and eventually end up in the ocean. 
We have new analytical methods in our lab that allow us to decipher the history in the missing window of time across the great unconformity, said Rebecca Flowers, co-author of the new study and a professor of geological sciences. We are doing this in the Grand Canyon and at other great unconformity localities across North America. Now, the missing section of the geologic column is so stark that it can be seen from the river, which is how it was first discovered by geologist, explorer, and ethnographer John Wesley Powell in the first government-sponsored survey of the canyon in 1869. Peak actually completed a similar trip this past spring. There are beautiful lines, Peek said. At the bottom, you can see very clearly that there are rocks that have been pushed together. Their layers are vertical. Then there's a cutoff. And above that, you have these beautiful horizontal layers that form the buttes and peaks that you associate with the Grand Canyon. And it turns out there's a lot of time between those two sections. In the western part of the canyon, more towards Lake Mead, the bottom stone or basement stone is 1.4 to 1.8 billion years old, while the horizontal layer layer above it starts at a mere 520 million years old. Other such losses have been found across America since the late 1800s. There's more than a billion years that's gone, Peek said. It's also a billion years during an interesting part of Earth's history, where the planet is transitioning from an older setting to the modern Earth we know today. And so in order to figure all this out, the team used a method called thermochronology, which traces the history of heat in stone. The most basic thing they found is that not all of the canyon was shaped by the same history. The western half of the canyon and the more familiar eastern portion may have gone through different geological transitions. It's not a single block with the same temperature history, Peak says. Taking samples from different areas across the canyon, they found that roughly 700 million years ago, basement rock in the west had an upheaval event, while the stone under the east side of the canyon remained buried by kilometers of sediment. As this timescale coincided with the breakup of Rodinia, the researchers hypothesize that the breakup affected the two areas differently, pulling them in different directions and at slightly different times. Peek and her team now hope to extend their research to other areas of the continent, where the great unconformity can be found. And so, yeah, very cool. All right, so let's talk about a second potential case of mystery solved. A new detailed map of Jupiter's gas may have uncovered the solution to Jupiter's so-called energy crisis, which has puzzled astronomers for half a century. An international team of researchers have worked to discover the secrets of Jupiter's atmospheric heating. It turns out the planet is too far away from the sun to be receiving enough energy to account for the hotness of its atmosphere. Now, while sunlight input should place the temperature in the upper atmosphere at a chilly negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, it actually measures in at a scorching 800 degrees, almost the same as the planet Venus. Using data from the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, they have now created a highly detailed global map of Jupiter's upper atmosphere. And they've been able to confirm for the first time that Jupiter's powerful aurora are the engines that deliver planet-wide heating. 
They found that despite taking up less than 10% of the area of the planet, the auroras are responsible for all of the heat exchange on the planet. There has been a long has been a very long-standing puzzle in the thin atmosphere at the top of every giant planet within our solar system. With every Jupiter space mission, along with ground-based observations over the past 50 years, we have consistently measured the equatorial temperatures as being much too hot. This, quote, energy crisis has been a long-standing issue. Do the models fail to properly model how heat flows from the aurora, or is there some other unknown heat source near the equator? This paper describes how we have mapped this region in unprecedented detail and have shown that, at Jupiter, the equatorial heating is directly associated with auroral heating, notes Dr. Tom Stallard, a member of the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Leicester in the UK. Um, Aurorae produce energy and light when charged particles are caught in the planet's magnetic field. As they spiral along the magnetic field lines heading for the poles, they strike atoms and molecules, thus again giving off light and energy. Now, I wonder if this mostly produces beautiful life show, light shows, but on Jupiter, materials spewing from the volcanic moon Io leads to the most powerful aurora measured in the solar system, and again creates large amounts of heat energy in the polar regions. Now, here there's actually a role for the sun to play. The solar wind brings its own magnetic field and likely enhances the aurora. Previous work had suspected the aurora, but this was the first time data had conclusively shown that the aurora is in charge of the planet's energy production. And so previous uh, data didn't have high enough resolution. And so that's why this involved such a large team. And so they created five maps in the atmospheric temperature of the atmospheric temperature at different spatial resolutions, with the highest resolution map able to break up temperature measurements into squares of just two degrees of latitude and longitude. Now, of course, that might seem pretty big for Earth, but remember, Jupiter is much bigger than Earth. They used more than 10,000 data points and made sure that each of these had an uncertainty bar that equaled less than 5%. Using computer models, they found that the atmosphere works much like a refrigerator. Heat energy is drawn from the equator towards the pole and sinks to the lower atmosphere in these polar regions. And so the new findings suggest that the fast-changing aurorae may drive waves of energy that flow against this polar flow and thus allow heat to flow back toward the equator, making a heat cycle that helps transfer energy in the form of heat flow throughout the planet's atmosphere. We also revealed a strange localized region of heating well away from the aurora, a long bar of heating unlike anything we've seen before, Stallard notes. Though we can't be sure what this feature is, I am convinced it's a rolling wave of heat flowing equatorward from the aurora. And so, yeah, this is very cool. And so, yeah. That is a good way to wrap up tonight. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.